The metaverse is emerging as the next big technology platform and promises to become the next frontier for human experiences on the internet. Into the Metaverse covers companies, technologies, and trends that are bringing this promise to life. Join thought leaders Matthew Canterman, CFA, formerly a senior analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, and Jonathan Raz Friedman, founder and CEO of SuperSocial, as they interview the brilliant minds building, shaping, and investing in the Metaverse. Great. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to episode 10 of season two of Into the Metaverse. Today, we're going to dive into something very interesting and different. We're going to dive into what is a democratic metaverse and how can we build one. And our guest for today is Professor Udi Shapiro. For background, Udi is an interdisciplinary scientist, internet pioneer, artist, and a proponent of e-democracy. He has been with the Weizmann Institute of Science since completing his PhD at Yale University in 1982. What's interesting, in 1993, Udi founded Ubique Limited, the first internet social network startup which launched Virtual Spaces 1.0, a social networking 2D metaverse application with 2D avatars on web pages, providing instant messaging, chat rooms, joint web surfing, online events and games, and integrated voice over IP. This was well before Facebook was founded and two and a half decades before it announced its interest in the metaverse, let alone anyone talking about the metaverse, aside of Neil Stevenson's book uh, a long time ago. Udi sold Ubique to America Online, performed management buyout, and then sold it again in 1998 to IBM, where its technology was the basis for same time, which was IBM's successful corporate network communication and collaboration products. So a lot of amazing history here with Udi today. So Udi, really excited to welcome you to our, the show today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Before we're diving in, we have a short message from our friends at Roundhill Investments. This podcast is brought to you by Roundhill Investments, the advisor to the Roundhill Ball Metaverse ETF. The Roundhill Ball Metaverse ETF, which trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol METV, is the largest dedicated metaverse fund in the United States. The ETF tracks an index developed by Ball Metaverse Research Partners, a metaverse-focused indexing and research company headed by industry expert Matthew Ball. For a prospectus and more information, please visit roundhillinvestments.com slash ETF slash METV. Read carefully. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Investors should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. Distributor Foresight Fund Services, LLC. So, Udi, diving right into it, the first question we kick off each show is, what is the metaverse? And no less important, what do you believe the metaverse is not? Okay, so uh, uh, in one of Moliere's uh, plays, uh, uh, a person, the, the protagonist who is aspiring to become a bourgeois gentleman, discovers to his uh, joy and amazement that he's been speaking prose for uh, all his life. So uh, something like that happened to me 30 years ago. Uh, people came to me and, and told me, and I discovered to my amazement that I've been building a metaverse. So, uh, so I can tell you uh, how, how this came about, that I was building a metaverse without knowing that. Uh, Neil Stephenson's book came out in 1992, and I haven't read it by that time. But uh, in 1993, we started to build uh, our product, uh, Virtual Places 1.0. And when it launched in 1995, uh, it had these features that uh, that uh, you, you said, you know, and uh, uh, it was 
in retrospect, the 2D metaverse. And people came to me and said, hey, you've read Snow Crash and, and, and you've built according to Snow Crash. So I don't know what you're talking about. You build a metaverse. Fine. You want it to be a metaverse. It's a metaverse. So there you go. Um, and um, some anecdotes. I'm not sure. Do you, are you interested in anecdotes or just the dry fact? Anecdotes. Okay. So just so you get a sense how early it was in 1993. Okay. It was really the very beginning of, of the web, you know, very, very early on. And Ubik, uh, our business plan um, uh, was perhaps the first uh, business plan that VCs saw that talked about doing business on the internet uh, or a startup based on the internet. And just to I'll give you two anecdotes that, to, that it are hard to believe, but they're, uh, they're true. One is that the VC who saw it uh, said that I have a spelling mistake in my, um, uh, in my business plan that uh, internet is spelled with a hyphen, inter-net. So I didn't know how to spell internet. Uh, that's one thing. And the other thing, it was clear to me that I'm going into uncharted territory legally because the only business on the web at that time, there was one business on the internet, not on the web because the web didn't exist yet. Uh, on the internet, it was a, a server and a protocol called Gopher. Uh, it was one of the, those uh, by now dead protocols that uh, just before HTTP. And the business was selling uh, electronic copies of newspapers, magazines, The Economist, I think, and a few others magazines were selling them online. And that was the only business on the internet. Uh, so I, I asked in the whatever news groups there were and mailing lists, I asked, does anyone know of an attorney who knows about IP on the internet? Okay, That's, that was the question. And I spread it around. And how many names did I get back? What's your guess? Zero. When I launched my company, there were zero attorneys who knew about IP on the internet, and the VCs thought the internet was spelled with a hyphen. Okay, that's when I started. Okay. Um, and we were... The reason why I did it is, is because I've been working for the previous uh, decade on, on advanced uh, uh, high-level programming languages for distributed, uh, uh, concurrent distributed parallel systems, uh, concurrent prolog, concurrent logic programming languages, and we developed languages and systems for the last decade. And I thought, well, it's high time to, to bring them to practice. And when I saw the web, I thought this will be a good, the beginning of the web, uh, it had only, you know, data and links to other data or documents with links to other documents. That was the only thing there. You know, you could look at the document, click on a link and go to another document. That, that was it. I thought it would be good to, to have people there. So you can also talk, to, you click on a link and talk to a person, not just see a document. And so the, the, by, the tagline of Ubik was bringing people to the web. Okay, because the web didn't have people. It had only data, not too much data, you know, just a few pages here and there. Uh, it was before Yahoo, you know, let alone before Google. Um, so anyway, the tagline of Ubik was bringing people to the web. And uh, that was the set of VCs, the set of attorneys and, and all that. And the product in retrospect, it was a bit crazy what we did, you know. Uh, we were ahead of our time in almost any dimension you can think about. Uh, and we were cutting our teeth, uh, you know, uh, trying to do that. Uh, also on tax issues, I mean, there were no, I mean, everything we did was 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 like going through the 
the jungle with a machete, you know. Um, so, um, so our product in retrospect, I mean, it had like everything, you know. It had instant messaging, it had chat rooms, uh, it had voice over IP, which we licensed from Vocaltech uh, at the time. Oh, and another indication how, how crazy early we were, Vocaltech developed their voice over IP for corporations, for corporate networks, not for the internet. So it was an intra-corporate product. And I told them we want to use it over the internet. They said, you know, we don't know if it's going to work. I don't know. We don't know about the internet. So in our license agreement, I told them, if you're going to work with us, you must be connected to the internet. And there was an obligation. They signed an obligation on their behalf that they will be connected to the internet with at least 19.6 baud connection to support us. A kilo, you know, kilobit or whatever. That was there. It was a legal. It was an obligation on there. They undertook an obligation to be all the time connected to the internet with at least 19.6 uh, kilobaud. Uh, uh, to uh, to so they can support us uh, with their voice over IP product. So we launched, uh, a, and we launched the product the same time Windows ninety five was launched. But when we launched it, it was on Sun Microsystems on top of Unix. Uh, Virtual Places two was already on Virtual on 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 uh, Windows ninety five. But the first product was announced was on, on Unix workstations. Um, and, uh, and we had voice over IP, we had chat rooms, instant messaging, uh, web tours, so you can hop on a bus and someone would drive and everyone would follow uh, on their browser from, from page to page. Uh, online events, we later add online games. Um, uh, and of course, um, 2D, uh, 2D avatars on, on, the, on the page, so you can actually see people moving about and, and highlight where you want and, and see the bubbles going when the people are talking. You know, and this was our first product. So no wonder it was uh, uh, ahead of its time uh, uh, commercially as well. Anyway, so that's. And Ut, thank you. Thank you for that incredible um, historic perspective and history lesson, Udi. I think it's, uh, we'll also make sure that we share with our, with the listeners some links or some uh, screenshots of what the, you know, Ubique, the virtual uh, experience looked like back then. When, when you think about the the human experience of what you guys have created, you know, 27 years ago and between human experience today on the internet in the context of the metaverse, what are the things that have not changed at all in your mind? And what are the things that have seen some form of transformation in human behavior? Okay, I think... Well, I'm not sure it's exactly what, what you've asked, but uh, as a politician, well, I'm not a politician, but politicians never answer the question they were asked. They just give their message. So uh, I'm not sure it's what you asked, but I have a message. And the message is that back then we thought, you know, the internet is going to go that, that way. And there was the declaration of independence of cyberspace of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And everyone believed it's going to be a brave new world, which is going to be you know, much better and much equal. Everyone have, will have access. No one will have control. You know, um, it was very, very optimistic and, and uh, kind of forward-looking uh, uh, period where, where people thought, everyone, including myself, thought we we're going to revolutionize the world to the better. And what happened since then, you know, to my, to my uh, 
defense, I was I wasn't there for the last several decades in the in the, in, the, in the sense that uh, after I sold my company the second time to IBM, uh, it was sold without my head attached. So uh, I, I was free to go back to science, and I decided I uh, the 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 life cycle of the internet is, is too fast for me. I wanted to slow down a little bit and went to do biology. And you know, biology, you have an idea and then you, you share it with your students or your team and then you can sleep for a year and then it comes back to you and you know, it worked, it didn't work, you know, what to do next. So, so the pace is much, much slower. And I wanted to go back to basic science. So for two decades until a few years ago, I've, I've been doing uh, biology uh, with a computer science kind of perspective. So. I'm not responsible for what happened the last 30 years to the internet, but uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. But what happened is actually unbelievably terrible, I think. Uh, and, and what happened is the opposite of what, what everyone was hoping for. Uh, rather than having you know egalitarian, distributed, you know, uh, shared, uh, open uh, environment, uh, what happened, it became even more centralized and more controlled. And, and contributed greatly to much, much worse inequality in terms of money and power between people compared to what, what there was 30 years ago. So the internet, instead of being the great equalizer, became the, the great disequalizer uh, of our society. And, and in some sense, that's what brought me back. Uh, also, I felt I exhausted what I could contribute to biology, and, 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 and I thought that well, I thought that democracy is in a worse shape than cancer research. So, okay. So I, 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 it's, it's a greater risk to humanity. The state of democracy is a greater risk to humanity than the state of cancer. So I, I, stopped my, I, I kind of slowly uh, phased out my, 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 my biology research and, and started focusing back on, on digital democracy. And, and for me, the biggest question was, how come what we, was think, what we were thinking is going to happen never happened? You know, what, what went wrong? And, uh, and in particular, you know, the internet revolutionized one industry after the other, left in ashes, you know, the, the old world order. All, so many old ways of doing things, of industries just were crippled and gone. You know, Borders books, where I bought my biology books, is gone, you know, and, 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 and of course, uh, uh, VCR rentals. And I mean, so much has been disappeared because of the internet, except... For democracy, which is like practiced identically to the way it was practiced almost identically 200 years ago, except some you know recent uh, disruptions called disruptions caused by by the ability to to disseminate fake news and and, and, and all that. So I I was trying to think you know, I, I was uh, uh, puzzled by this by this thing you know how how come the internet has has revolutionized every field except the one that was the most kind of, uh, it felt it, it's, it, it, it's inevitable that it'll happen because what is democracy? It's about people communicating and sharing their opinions and, and, and sharing information and sharing their preferences and then aggregating them and, and then working according to them. So it, the internet is ideal for that, but, but the opposite has happened. So, um, so that's, that's uh, what I've been doing for the last five years, which resulted in, in, in my work on, on so-called democratic metaverse, which is where we are today. So I think I spoke enough. I'll let you guide me with the next question. Well, I, I mean, I think this is a great segue to kind of connecting the previous one with the next one, which is as, as we 
we would really love if you can introduce, before we dig deeper, if you can introduce your vision, concept, and current research on building an egalitarian or a democratic metaverse. What, what does it actually mean? What does it mean for, for humanity and for people? And how different it is from the metaverse that we are currently seeing that is being shaped? Okay. I think uh, any way you look at it, no matter how you turn this problem from one direction or from any, anywhere you look at it, the, 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 if, if your goal is equality the, uh, in the digital realm, uh, there is, there is a, 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 a bridge you have to cross, the problem you have to solve, which is uh, fake and duplicate identities, digital identities. Because you cannot have, the equality has to be between people, not between accounts. And if you want equality between people in the digital realm, somehow you have to have this one-to-one association of people with digital accounts. Now we know how to solve it in a centralized system. The government gives you passports or identity cards or, or whatever. The bank gives you an account. Google gives you, well, not, not Google, but the bank gives you an account after verifying your identity. So there, there are centralized solutions for, for, for doing it. But they're always depending on giving someone else control over, over who you are, over your digital identity. And the question that has to be addressed is, is how, uh, how can this be done in, 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 in the digital realm? Now, Let's put this question aside. Let's let's talk about digital uh, democracy for a second. The, the, there is a decentralized platform that's being emerged. You know the cryptocurrencies, blockchain uh, technology, and smart contracts. And at some point during the project, you know, uh, initially we developed some some. Initially, I thought all you need to do is just write some software and help that will let people, you know act democratically, and, and what, that's what we think is a piece of software, okay? But uh, there was no solution, to, to a genuine solution to the sysadmin problem, you know, which can always get into and, and, and disrupt whatever the system that you're building uh, uh, was it intended to do. Someone will have a super user password and disrupt it. And for me, it was a major revelation to see smart contracts on Ethereum saying, aha, uh-huh, there's no sysadmin. No one can, you know, no one can come and disrupt it. And at some point, I said, okay, if we want to solve this problem, we can just build, write a smart contract on top of Ethereum. There are the DAOs that are being uh, developed, and still there is this lingering question of, of of digital identity. But 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 at least we have the platform. But the more our research progressed, and this is a, a group that sort of emerged out of these questions at Weizmann with with uh, colleagues, students, postdocs. Um, at Weizmann, the, 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 we realized that actually things are sort of not, not, not the way they seem in the following sense. First of all, that the cryptocurrency is platforms that we are familiar with are all plutocratic. So they're based on powers distributed not by, to people, but to money. The more money you have, the more power you have, the more control you have. And furthermore, they're all designed with a rich get richer dynamics. So, you know, when they go up, at least the rich get richer. When they go down, you know, I don't know what happens. But when they go up, the rich get richer, and uh, uh, and they they, despite their promise, they help further exacerbate the problem of inequality. So platforms contribute to uh, worsen inequality. You know, uh, 
פייסבוק, אמזון, Airbnb, Uber, they all help increase inequality. And cryptocurrencies, unfortunately, also help increase inequality as opposed to, to decreasing it. But if we have a solution to this identity problem, if people know who, who they are, there's no need for proof of work or proof of stake because just we know, we, these proof of work and proof of stakes are needed because you don't know who people are. You cannot trust anybody. So they have to, sh- to prove who they are with, by, uh, you know, computing something or by putting cash on the table and say, fine, he exists because he has cash on the table. I don't care if this is a dog or a, or a, or a refrigerator or a computer, but they have cash, that's fine. They can compute, that's fine. Uh, but that's not good for democracy. For democracy, you want people who, 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 who genuinely are genuinely identified. And if you solve it, then you don't need proof of work or proof of stake. So this kind of turned the tables on this direction and, and said, okay, If we want something which is egalitarian, not plutocratic, and we want something that uh, is democratic, we have to solve the genuine identity problem anyway. Therefore, we can have a completely different foundation, which is not based on the standard kind of cryptocurrencies platform. So my current view is you have this huge branch in the digital realm, which is platform-based, authoritarian, centrally controlled, you know, worth trillions of dollars, They have research labs, they have scientists, they have, you know, thousands of scientists are paid to strengthen platforms and write, so, de- develop uh, software, technology, patents, and all that. And then you have cryptocurrencies with, again, trillion dollar, trillions of dollars of valuation, hundreds of hundred uh, thousand programmers, thousands of scientists, thousands of patents, strengthening this plutocratic platform. And we must have a third alternative, which is egalitarian democratic, which No one is going to make money out of because it has to be common good. You cannot do an ICO. Uh, you cannot, you know, but that's the one that the 8 billion people on the planet need. I just want to reiterate to our audience and everyone who is listening, there is a third way. <laughs> what you see is not all the options, but it's a very different world because, Udi, what you're describing, and I, I'm just... I don't want to be a cynicist because I'm not, but we do live in a world where greed and making money for the past hundreds of years have always been a big part of human endeavor, that wealth creation that people aspire for better life, which is why the United States of America became you know so successful, which is why the internet became what it is for good or bad. And so what, What do you think when we talk about an egalitarian metaverse that is a common good, um, what would be the economic engine behind it? And what does it mean for the users and the builders within that third option? Okay. It's a very big question. And I don't claim to have, a, you know, a, I don't have a packaged, uh, you know, business plan that explains it. Uh, but I can give you some uh, some kind of general general hints what I think it it should be first of all I should say that uh, just to give you a perspective you know I've been I've built systems before you know in, in ubique and also in, in the in, in, in the academia and I have a sense of reality okay reasonable sense of reality unfortunately in retrospect if you look at things I did in, the, in science they all were you know ahead of their time so 
if I'm doing something now, it must mean it's ahead of its time, which unfortunately means it will take some time to be realized, which is, I accept that. But for the last five years, I always thought that we are, you know, six years from starting implementation work, starting from writing software for the last five years. And, and we haven't written a single line of software still because everything, so I think I was thinking I'm, I'm going to progress forward, but actually what I did, I was progressing uh, downwards. And, 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 and our research became deeper and deeper into the foundations of theoretical computer science, foundations of distributed computing. And just to give you a, a, a perspective, uh, there is already known, you know, we, we all talk about blockchain consensus and how you need it for smart contracts and for cryptocurrencies and all that. But there is already research that shows that you don't need consensus for some things. For example, you can have payment systems without consensus. You need something weaker than consensus. Um, uh, which uh, which can call equivocation exclusion or double spend exclusion, okay? It turns out, and that's part of the foundational research that I've been doing for the last uh, couple of years, that there is even a, a, a lower division, which is uh, a lower kind of strata, which I call um, grassroots systems, uh, which characterized by the fact that and, and and there is a mathematical characterization of these types of systems characterized by the fact that a, 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 a grassroots system can emerge independently in different locations at different times and later interoperate. Okay, so that's the definition. And you can think about uh, as, as it is easy to imagine, uh, although not not easy to define and build, but that's sort of part of my research, uh, at least uh, enabling research. Uh, you can imagine a serverless, distributed, grassroots social network, an alternative to Facebook, okay? Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, whatever, that starts by everyone having, you know, in their smartphone some software. You can connect to people that are your friends, family, friends, neighbors, you know, people you know and trust. And you start communicating with them, and the network builds grassroots bottom up. And if people in Israel or in my village in Israel create this, and then in another village create this, and if someone happens to be a member of both, then it connects and it can grow bottom up. So it's easy to imagine that. Uh, I have a mathematical characterization of what it is. Then the next level, and this tr tries to, this is an, a long answer to your question. The next level, you can, and I have a, a, again a paper about this. There is a notion of self-sovereign. Um, Sovereign cryptocurrencies, sovereign personal cryptocurrencies, where people can issue their own crypto, their own cryptocurrency, and be their sovereign, like a like a state, and then interoperate with other people with their currencies and have exchange rates emerge, etc., etc. So there is a mathematical foundation uh, for for grassroots uh, uh, cryptocurrencies as well. And just as, uh, uh, as a side note, of course. Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc., are not grassroots. You cannot have two bitcoins emerge in different places and then have one bitcoin. It's not. So the, 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 the all existing cryptocurrencies are not grassroots, but you can have cryptocurrencies which are grassroots, which are built on top of that. So the answer is, again, the the the, the, the full answer will take a long time, but the general direction is that there it it is possible mathematically, conceptually, and I hope also economically and practically to build systems which are grassroots, which do not give control to any specific organization or entity that emerge and support local communities and local commerce. And if you think, what is the worst thing that the digital economy is doing to the world? Uh, it's really sucking value outside of local communities into global platforms. 
So local communities are getting weaker and weaker and, uh, uh, and poorer because there's no local commerce, there's no local interaction. Everything, you just click on a link and it ships from somewhere in cyberspace through uh, via Amazon to your doorstep and you don't buy anymore in your local, uh, local uh, whatever. Okay, so my hope, and then, as I said, based on my past experience, it means it's a few decades away. Uh, based on my personal experience of what I've been doing, everything I did was a few decades ahead of its time, uh, a decade or more. So and I accept that this vision is a few decades ahead of its time, but uh, the vision is bringing power back to local communities. Okay, uh, and this grassroots software, and this goes back to what's the financial model. This has to be common good. And we know how to build common good. The U.S. is filled with common good. All the highways, all the bridges, you know, they're all common good. Uh, water, water systems, these are all common good that's needed for, for our life. So it's not true that the U.S. is just, you know, private capital. There's a huge infrastructure, which is a common good. This has to be common good. This is another software infrastructure that has to be funded by governments, by philanthropic organizations. That will have, you know, every village in Africa, in Asia, in Israel, in, in, in the U.S. can have their own local bootstrap, um, uh, high quality, you know, the whole stack of all the functions without central control, without giving away personal information for advertisements, without paying anybody, just as a common good funded by governments and, and philanthropists who want to support local communities as opposed to sucking value from local value and power from local communities to global platforms and global brands. That's, that's sort of the social economic vision. I was, uh, was about to ask it and then you said it. So I'm glad you said it, you know, this, it's kind of this dichotomy and you've dealt with venture capitalists in your past, right? There's, there's so much capital available in the VC land for companies in the, the crypto and the metaverse space right now, even with crypto markets imploding as we're recording and, you know, so I was going to ask about that, but you kind of answered it, right? This needs to be funded not by VCs and not by private capital. This is something, we look at the internet, that was funded by governments. You know, we look at NASA, that was funded by governments, right? This is beyond the realm of private capital. This can be a public-private partnership, but, you know, we need governments to step in here to really make this work, it sounds like. Well, I think VCs have enough money to afford to spend some of it on philanthropy. But it, but it cannot be a make-believe philanthropic project, which is, okay, let's give everybody something and then extract value out of everybody, you know? which there are some projects who, who look like that, who say, oh, we're going to give you, you know, stuff, lots of stuff for free, and then we're going to skim all the, all, uh, everything at the top. So that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about true philanthropy, not make-believe philanthropy. Of course, exactly. And, and so I think from that perspective, you know, we talked about this, Yon, you, you asked this to Angela Dalton on, on a prior episode. She's a VC in the space. You know, it's like we have this vision of this egalitarian metaverse empowering individuals and creators and reconciling that with the you know how profitable the web platforms today are you know it's these vcs want 45 percent ebitda margins that google has you know then that's what they want at scale so it's it's this weird dichotomy so i definitely understand what you're saying is you know this is this is something that's a lot bigger it's a lot longer term looking and to be and, and i do think we need governments and like the un to get involved to kind of put to, and, and research institutes like the weizmann institute to come together and put this together and lead the charge just like we did in developing the internet. I think people forget that the internet came out of the defense, uh, defense department in the US. Yeah, in terms of dynamic, again, I'm not, I don't want to prophesize, but in terms of the, the dynamics, I think it has, it has to be sort of a guerrilla project initially 
Uh, and I think with people who volunteer, you know, uh, open source type of thing, uh, because you see, the problem is uh, also, or especially in Israel, but everywhere, is that people who are in this space can make so much money by joining, you know, machine learning companies or crypto companies or, or whatever, that that uh, a, a, a true a job, you know, a government-funded job or a Weizmann Institute-funded job will never be attractive. Financially, you cannot compete. It has to be a kind of voluntary, uh, ideologically driven commitment by by some technical people who want uh, who want to make this happen. You know, because they've made enough money and want to contribute, or because they have enough spare time to to contribute on on the side. But it it cannot be. You cannot raise money and compensate people financially for doing this work. It has to be you know a uh, uh, work of love. But I think also another motivation, Udi, and, and you know, I'm sure this is a big part of, of why you're doing this, is we all recognize the point of time and the inflection point of the role of technology in our lives, right? There's a bunch of different existential risks that are surrounding uh, the global population, anywhere from climate change to, you know, destabilization with geopolitics to the economic uncertainty that is that plowing the markets. And, and so I think what a project of that nature and at that scale, especially knowing that we're really at the beginning of that journey, as you said, um, you know, this is a, at least a decade plus, if not more, of a journey, it requires mission-driven people who really want to create and enable a world that you're describing where there is an egalitarian and democratic digital realm where local communities and local population can once again thrive in a way that they haven't been for the past several decades. Um, and, and I think that mission-driven, either if people do it voluntarily or not, um, is, is, I think, a really important component to, as you say, to really attract top talent to come in and help define and build that, very much like other pioneering uh, uh, frontiers you know, back in the day. Um, and I think what's happening now, which is on the one hand interesting and on the other hand is challenging, is that there is this inflection point where metaverse and Web3 technologies is also very much associated with massive economic gains because of cryptocurrencies and these massive riches that have been created over the past decade. Um, and I want to refer her to and maybe get your perspective on something you actually wrote five years ago. Um, and I, you know, I'd love you to kind of you know maybe speak about that and why you have that certain perspective on on Bitcoin and and current version of cryptocurrencies. And you know, you wrote a Medium post about five years ago, basically describing Bitcoin as, as sort of, you know, a, a, a cancerous activity. And so it'd be great if you can unpack that for a second. Why did you refer to it in that nature? And what does it mean for how do we do it differently? Okay, I think this, there are two aspects here which are uh, orthogonal. One is the speculative nature of cryptocurrencies, which I'm, I don't want to talk about. Uh, I don't have, uh, you know, I'm not an economist. I don't have any any special value to give on that. Uh, people can bet on whatever they want. Uh, but uh, specifically, I'm talking about proof of work and the dynamics of proof of work. Proof of work uh, is an environmental disaster. You know, there's no way, there's no other way to, 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 to say it. it's an environmental disaster. And if we had a responsible world government, they would have outlawed today, Bitcoin, today. There's no, there's absolutely no justification to destroy the planet uh, for this uh, for this activity, especially since we are we know that there are algorithmic alternatives. It's not that, 
oh, the value of free currency, you know, distributed, blah, 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 is so important that we must destroy the environment as we're doing it. No. Even if you believe that the value is so big, you can still do it without destroying the environment. Therefore, the only responsible thing is to outlaw Bitcoin today. And every responsible government has to do that. And uh, if the Bitcoin community is, you know, hard pressed, I'm sure with a gun pointed like this, they will switch to proof of work, a proof of stake. You know, there are enough technologies to do that. They say, oh, oh let's save our soul and, 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 and build a Bitcoin plus uh, plus and uh, then shower to everybody the same. So don't, don't worry, you will, whatever you had in old Bitcoin, you have a new Bitcoin and we'll abandon it, abandon ship and jump to the new ship and it will be proof of uh proof of stake and 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 we will not be accused anymore of destroying the planet that's it's a very simple thing and uh so it's not against the values of cryptocurrency it's not about whether it helps investments or invest in helps a small investor or destroys a small investor it is all I'm, i'm not talking about this at all i'm talking about specifically the use of proof of work as opposed to alternatives for example proof of stake and proof of work must be outlawed today that's all. No, I, I definitely get that. And, you know, we spoke with, uh, you know, in the last episode, we spoke with Sutu, who's a creator, and he's using the Tezos blockchain for his work and because that's proof of stake. I mean, same thing when we spoke with Ubisoft in season one, you know, all the blockchain work they're doing in their gaming portfolio is on Tezos, again, because they were the first to go proof of stake at scale for the environmental reasons that you discussed. So there's definitely solutions there. Um, to make that work. It'll be quite interesting to see Ethereum because Ethereum is right now trying to go from proof of work to proof of stake. Yeah, they're, they're trying and I'm sure they're doing it because of their consciousness, uh, conscience, but if there was a gun in their head, they would do it faster. That's all. Exactly. And so, well, maybe with Ethereum down, you know, 70%, there's a, there's a bigger gun to their head to get it done now. So, uh, well, it's, uh, you know, uh, there's all this talk about green investment and all that. You know, green investment is divesting every proof of, uh, proof of work cryptocurrency. That's green investment. And investors should do it and government should outlaw it and it'll, be go- it'll go away because right now it's just an absolute disaster. Absolutely. And I, I think, um, you know, maybe like one last question since we're kind of getting close to time here, but you, you kind of alluded to it before. I just wanted to go back to it. You know, Israel has been a hotbed for technology for many, many years, um, for lots of reasons that we don't have enough time to get into. But what you're kind of describing, this egalitarian metaverse, kind of feels like the digital version of a kibbutz to me. You know, this this communal shared economy, uh, sense of identity within the collective. And um, I don't know if that's a term you've used, but, but I, I just wanted to ask, you know, about Israel in particular, you know, because it's just been so strong in technology for so many years, does Israel have a strong role to play in the development of the metaverse? And what, and what uh, expertise can Israel rely on to, to carve itself out in this next iteration of the Internet? Well, I'm not that uh, politician to talk about, you know, what Israel is or, or, or is not. But I can tell you that uh, an inspiration for me in doing this is not so much the kibbutz as well as my village where I live in Israel. It's a small village called Nataf. It has about 500 people. And when I think about the community, about people, friends, relatives, and how they interact. And there's, that's what I have in mind, because, you know, the people babysit for each other and, uh, uh, and help each other, work for each other in some ways. You know, there are some, uh, some yoga teachers, there are some, uh, you know, Alexander Method teachers. 
And next to us, there, but there are no other commerce in the village. All, all the commerce is in the next village, Abu Ghosh. And there's a interacting commercial relations. I mean, they have all the shops, but they also have builders and, and gardeners who work for us. And then we spend money there. So I, I keep thinking, you know, what if we had the Nataf currency and the Abu Ghosh currency? And then if they had some inter, inter, interoperation and, and, and this, a, a, a grassroots crypto economy, can uh, when I when I try to imagine it in a concrete way, I keep thinking about our our village, the Arab village next door. What happens inside us? What happens there? How people know and trust each other? And there are many people there I know and trust, and I, they would give me credit. I would give them credit, which is the foundation. I didn't say that, but a key aspect of these sovereign cryptocurrencies is that they can bootstrap an economy without external capital or credit, simply by mutual credit lines. Uh, people giving each other credit, people who know and trust each other giving each other credit, and then you have liquidity, and then you can have, you know, everything else works. So, so I do have inspiration from my local Israeli kind of uh, vicinity in thinking about that. Even though, right for the last year, I've been in New York. Right, right now, I'm in New York City. Well, that's a that's kind of a shared affinity. Both Udi and I are Israelis, but we both live in the U.S. at the moment. Um, uh, one one thing I want to add, or, or sort of. I have a bit of that provocative perspective, Udi, on the role of technology in the metaverse. And I might have mentioned it when we first spoke uh, over Zoom, which is, you know, historically, human society started in these really small collective with hunters and gatherers and then slightly bigger agricultural communities, right? And and I think obviously now we became a, a, the world is flat, as as, as Thomas Friedman is saying, and, you know, we're all one big village. Um, And I am very curious, and I, this is more of a, kind of provocative thought for the future and, and maybe a follow-up episode in, in a couple of years' time. I do believe and maybe even want to see how technology, the metaverse, crypto networks enable that historic connection between communities and people in small groups that can interact, com- commerce between one another. Um, I am very curious on how the internet, the metaverse, and crypto networks can once again bring that human connection from you know, 2,000 years ago, but in a whole new futuristic manner that takes us forward. Um, just a thought I have of what that sort of world looks like. What are the underlying infrastructure and technologies that will enable that? Um, and I think I, I want to finish by saying that something maybe bold, um, and I might be totally fooled to say that, uh, or people will think, oh, that was a pretty big, bold bet that Jan made in the podcast. But I do believe that, Udi, you and the work you're doing and the research that you're now doing with your colleagues um, is as important as the research that, you know, people like um, 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 uh, Bernard Lee and the early Internet movement of the late 80s and the early 90s. Um, and, 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 and I'm certain that we're going to look backwards to the episode today and the work you guys are doing now as really the early foundations, the early days of of potentially establishing a different way of using the internet to create a better, more connected, more collaborative, more prosperous global uh, population than than ever before. Um, and hopefully bringing those early days of humanity in a futuristic manner and creating more equality because we're definitely not in that direction at the moment. And for the world to continue and thrive, uh, we need to build that sort of less mercenary and more collaborative and more equal population. Thank you. So with that in mind, thank you, Udi, for joining us. And uh, Matthew and I had a great enjoyment to listen. Uh, We're going to add some links to the follow-up and when we release the episode. Um, But thank you for being with us. It's been absolutely captivating. Thank you.
I hope I uh, gave you enough metaverse meat during the talk because I think we went into many different directions and, and not always focused on the word metaverse. So, but I hope it was relevant, relevant enough. It was, and I think it's great to unpack this metaverse word and bring more and more context into what are, what are the actual things and the aspects that come into the metaverse as we really start to popularize the term and, and ultimately making sure that it's much more than a connector, a connected uh, virtual world of, of video games.